You may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on 977. I'll give you a brief review from the Exploring the New Testament, a guide to uh, the New Testament. This is the second volume. The first volume covers the Gospels and uh, I think the Acts of the Epistles. So it describes Ephesians this way. It took a long time for Jews and Gentiles to realize that the age-long, deeply-seated division between them was now overcome. In chapter 3, Paul therefore spends time referring to the way in which this realization had come about through a new revelation of God's purpose given to the Christian apostles and prophets, especially to himself, that is, to Paul. A further prayer for the readers that they may know the love and power of God follows appropriately through the second part of chapter 3. Now that God has brought together diverse people in one church, it is important that they maintain and grow more fully into their unity. This is to be accomplished through the rich variety of gifts with which God has endowed the church, a working together to build up the body. And that's where we're at in chapter 4. We're going to hit chapter, or verse 12 today in chapter 4. So a couple review verses. Verse 7, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I've got highlighted the each one of us because that will be important when we get to verse 12 in understanding what Paul writes in verse 12. Uh, each person in the body of Christ, every Christian has been gifted. But then in verse 11, only certain gifts are mentioned, certain foundational gifts, but these aren't the only gifts as we've already talked about. Verse 11 reads, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So each one of us has a gift. That doesn't mean each one of us is one of these five things. But each Christian has a gift. Starting off with those five which are foundational to the way Christ gifts the entire church, which is what we're going to build on. Verse 12 explains why he started with those five gifts, or four gifts if you combine, combine the shepherds and teachers. Shepherd uh, could be also translated pastor. Pastors and teachers, whether that's one or two. But verse 12 explains why we're doing this, why Christ did this. Now, our book's already told us he's done this to build up the body, but it's not true because an author a few years ago wrote it. It's true because that's what Paul writes to the Ephesians. And it looks like this. And by the way, how you understand why he gave the gifts is going to depend largely on how you think verse 12 ought to read. And probably everybody here's Bible reads similarly unless you have an old King James Bible, which kind of ruled the day for an awful long time. And the old King James Bible follows up verse 11 with this. So he gave these uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. In the old King James, Christ gave those gifts in verse 11 so that 
they could now do three things. They could uh, perfect the saints, they would be involved in the work of ministry, and they would edify the body of Christ. Uh, those gifts are given, so those three things could be accomplished. But all the other translations translate it somewhat differently. The English Standard Version is the one I'll show you on the screen. It's representative of newer translations. Something along these lines, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Now, the big difference between the old King James and newer translations is not the difference between King James saying perfecting and the English Standard Version using the word equip. Or your Bible may say equipping. That's not the big difference. The big difference is in that little comma, whether that comma belongs there or not. Because if the comma belongs there, then it seems to read as if those gifts were given, let's cue in on the shepherds and teachers, pastors and teachers are given to do three things. I've got three assignments in the old King James to perfect or equip the saints. I've got the work of ministry, and my job is to edify the body of Christ. But if the comma doesn't belong there, then my job is to equip the saints and the saints are part doing the work of ministry. And by me equipping the saints and the saints doing the work of ministry, we accomplish this big goal of building up the body of Christ. So the question is, which is right? Which is the preferred translation? Now, if, I just, if you just count up your translations and you're like, well, most of them don't have the comma, so it doesn't belong. That's not a good way to decide if it's true. But the tricky part is this, we don't have the original manuscript that Paul wrote. We don't have any original manuscripts. We've got thousands of copies of what Paul wrote. Some are very early copies, some are later copies through the Middle Ages, but we've got thousands of copies. So we have, we have a uh, great confidence that we know what Paul wrote. What we don't know is how Paul punctuated because when Paul wrote it, there were no commas, and there were no periods. There were no colons, there were no semicolons. They just wrote all the words in capitals, one right after the other. And then as people made copies, they're like, you know, it'll really help it if we add a comma, we add a period, you know, a sentence has ended, a sentence has begun, and that all came later. And the more time they had to do that, the more consensus there was as to where the comma ought to be or the period ought to be. But Paul didn't use them because that's not the way they wrote in the first century. So I don't mean to cast out like this is going to be a really hard problem as to how should we read verse 12 either with a comma there or not with a comma there. I think the answer is, is with the consensus of the newer translations for good reasons. Number one, because of the context. Remember, Christ has gifted each one of us. Ephesians is concerned with all of the church. It's not a letter to the pastors of the church. Now, Timothy was a, a, a two letters Paul wrote to Timothy, and, and they have application, but they are written to a very specific person, and then we can make, by way of application, we can draw certain conclusions. But Ephesians wasn't written to the, to the leadership of the church, it's written to the whole church. 
And what Paul has made very plain and is making very plain in Ephesians is that it takes all of us together to be the church. And so the context requires, I think, a rendering like this and not like that. A second reason would be the actual text itself. Because it's very interesting, and this is one way that people determined where you ought to punctuate, is based upon the words that Paul wrote. Now, we know, do know the words Paul wrote. And it's very interesting, Paul used one preposition translated to, and then he used a completely different preposition translated for. Now, in the old King James, it uses the same preposition all throughout, which makes it sound like... Pastors are given three jobs. They're given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. But that's not what Paul wrote. Paul used a different preposition. He gave pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and both of those things together for building up the body of Christ. So I, I think the newer translations have got it right by not including that comma. But what difference does it make, if any? I mean, if there's work to be done, uh, I'm kind of glad for the newer translations because it's not all my work. It's all of our work together. But let's talk about what difference it makes. If we go with the old King James Version, it's really a model that's reflected in the Old Testament. Because Israel had one tribe of 12 that was the priestly tribe. Their job was to be the priests. Their job was to minister on behalf of all the rest of Israel. There weren't 12 priestly tribes, there was one. And so there was this distinction between those who were involved in the work of the tabernacle and the work of the temple and everybody else that participated and benefited from the work that was being done. That's how it was in the Old Testament. By God's design, God required it. The way the King James renders it is also the way the Roman Catholic Church is largely structured, where there's a sharp difference between priests and people. And the priests are, are charged with doing the work of, a of the ministry in ways that the people are not. Now, the Catholic Church, to be, to be somewhat fair they would say, we're not saying that the people don't have work to do. They wouldn't agree with that statement, but there is a sharp distinction between what the priest can do and what the people can do. And, and you are to put yourself under those priests, and they have an authority that you don't have, and they have liberties and freedoms you don't have, and for many centuries of time, the people weren't allowed to fully participate in the Lord's Supper, lest a drop of what they believed to be Christ's blood would be inadvertently spilled or shed. So there, was a sharp, there is a sharp distinction in the Roman Catholic Church. Their model is kind of like the old King James renders it, verse 12. A third way, though, and this is just me, but my Baptist experience was kind of built on the old King James model where professionals did the work of ministry. Uh, and I have... I learned many good things in my Baptist tradition as I did in my Lutheran tradition. Uh, I'm not Every group of, of churches, every individual church, has both strengths and weaknesses because nobody's arrived yet. I can only speak from my own experience. 
When I was uh, a teenager in the 1970s and, and we went to a Baptist church in Decatur, the whole model of ministry was you were supposed to bring your friends and your family and your neighbors and the people you worked with, you were to bring them to the church so that the work of ministry could take place. That's why we sang Just As I Am until somebody finally decided they needed to walk the aisle because that's where ministry took place. And you did it that way every week. And there was this, there was uh, clearly this sense of the people didn't have the insight and the authority as the pastors did. And all ministry had to be approved and conducted through the pastors. And lest there be any Bible study where somebody who wasn't uh, entrusted with a certain amount of authority within the church, they had to be in that Bible study because that Bible study may go rogue. The Bible study may decide the Bible says things that the church decided we don't believe that. And so you had to keep everybody under the thumb of our particular Baptist church. That's just the way it worked. Uh, Cindy's Baptist church growing up in Delaware, her, you know, one of the things she said is they, they would say, you know, they would encourage you to read your Bible. But if you ever came up with an understanding or persuasion that their church didn't believe, you were wrong. Because there was a clear hierarchy between God, Christ, pastors, and then everybody else. So if there was any confusion, the pastor was right. Now that sounds kind of appealing. <laughs> but it's not the model that's actually given in Ephesians. So that was my own Baptist experience. Uh, if I apply this to church worship... I would say, I would suggest, I'm persuaded that church worship, however, whatever that looks like, uh, you don't get much from me when I'm leading a worship other than I'm picking the songs, uh, but whether it's somebody waving their arms encouraging you to sing, whether it's a whole worship team up here, whether it's an entire band up here, I would suggest their job is to get you to participate in the, in the worship. Their job is not to perform so that you can sit back and it doesn't make any difference whether you sing or not because the music's so loud nobody could hear you. I've been in churches like that. I'm not saying that there aren't people worshiping there. I find it very difficult to worship there. If I feel like my experience, my sense is it seems like a performance of professionals and really the congregation is irrelevant because they're that good and they're that loud. I think the point of worship is to get God's people to participate. Just like the point of ministry of pastors and teachers is to get God's people involved. So let's talk about the ESV version. To equip the saints for the work of ministry and all that for building up the body of Christ. This is what the Reformers discovered as the priesthood of all believers. And Martin Luther especially was an advocate of this wonderful discovery of the Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers. He was so, if you've ever read Martin Luther, and it's not hard to read Martin Luther because his stuff is widely available. And if you want a fun version of Martin Luther, just go on your, not now on your phone, but on your phone at some point or on the internet, just go to the Lutheran insult generator. And it will insult you. As, it'll quote you what, how Lutheran insulted usually the Catholic Church and often the Pope. And then you can hit the button that says, insult me again, and it'll produce a new one. Luther had a lot to say about the Catholic Church because he completely, once he bought into the idea of the priesthood of all believers, 
he did not have a lot of good to say about the archbishops and the popes, who made themselves in a different category of, of sainthood. In fact, the whole Catholic Church is built on that, right? You can attain sainthood. Not ordinary people can attain sainthood. But in fact, the Bible is written in such a way that all Christians are called saints, whether the Roman thinks you're a saint or not, whether you think you're a saint or not, whether I think I'm a saint or not, if I'm in Christ, if he's my Savior, if he's my Lord, I'm a saint. So Luther discovered this priesthood of all believers, and he found it so exciting. It's kind of based on 1 Peter 2.9. I've thrown in 1 Peter 5.3 because I think it's relevant. 1 Peter 2.9 reads this way. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's not for priests. That's not for a, a clergy class. That's for God's people. The word people is the word laos. We get the word laity from that. All of God's people, all of God's laity are called a royal priesthood. And Luther hit that point hard and often. We're all of God's priests. A royal priesthood. If you're a Christian. It's also very interesting that in the New Testament, pastors or those that are uh, entrusted with the shepherding of God's flock, God's church, they're never called priests. As often as the word is used in the Old Testament, pastors, overseers, elders, are never called priests. I think that's for good reason. I think it's by design. Because we're all priests. If we're talking about, well, you know, who are, who's the priest at your church? It's like, well... I mean, you want a list of everybody that comes here that's a believer? We're all priests. That's what we're called to. There's nobody that's a Christian who's not a priest. We're part of a royal priesthood, according to what Peter writes. And then in chapter 5 and verse 3, Peter says, I'm an elder, I'm writing to fellow elders. So now he's addressing the leaders. Peter says, I'm an elder, I'm addressing fellow elders. He tells them to shepherd the flock of God, which is our word pastoring. So elders are entrusted with pastoring. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. That's the verb form of being an overseer. We, have, we call our leaders in our church overseers. It's a biblical word. It's in Timothy as well. Overseers, elders, pastors are kind of interchangeable, though they emphasize different things. So Peter says to the elders, pastor the flock of God that is among you like an overseer. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That word charge is this, uh, tr that's how it would look in English if you translate from the Greek. That's where we get our word clergy. So all of God's people, the laity, are also called God's clergy. Because we're a royal priesthood. The distinction, the sharp distinction between people up here on a platform that talk a lot and have a lot of time to read, people up here on the platform are no more God's clergy than people that are sitting right now listening. We're all God's. If you're a Christian, you're a part of God's clergy. You're part of the people of God. You're a part of a royal priesthood. According to what was discovered 
in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. But there are two potential opposite errors, because anytime you get out of one ditch, Luther clearly got out of the ditch of this hierarchy uh, and this, this priestly way of looking at things in the Roman Catholic Church. But as he got out of that, he didn't get in the opposite ditch, but a lot of other people did. And the opposite ditch is that all of a sudden you don't need pastors and teachers. And you don't need the foundation of the apostles and prophets and the evangelists between the two. And so when Luther's preaching this priesthood of all believers, what happened was there were some groups that popped up and they became very independent-minded and very self-sustaining and they didn't need any leaders. And Luther said, then Luther had to pull back and say, that's just as big a problem. It's an opposite problem, but it's just as big a problem. Because there are leaders in the church. All these people that are given to the church are, have a speaking gift. They're saying something. They're communicating something. They're building people up for the work of ministry so that something can be done. And so the church still requires pastors and teachers for the work of ministry. But not the hierarchical structure that is in place either in my Baptist upbringing or in a Roman Catholic church. There's a problem either way. Somehow it all has to fit together in a beautiful, harmonious way. There's a couple of ways it's explained. I've got a lot of books on Luther because he's such a fascinating individual. I've been fascinating my whole life. But one way that it's explained, uh, what Luther's struggling with here, is the idea of in a town, you could make it a... Uh, a country or you could make it a state. But let's say in a town, everybody has equal rights as citizens. But those citizens recognize somebody to be their leader. We'll call him the mayor. Them recognizing or voting on him to be the mayor doesn't make him a citizen. He's already a citizen because we're all citizens of the same city. But he's recognized as one who will lead and direct and kind of steer the way things are going. In our church, our overseers are uh, this duplicity of, I guess it's not mayors, it's councilmen, where we're to provide leadership and direction, but we're all part of God's laity. We're all the priesthood. We're all citizens of the same township. Another way to look at it, and Luther used this one himself, is uh, he's, he's entrusted with being a shepherd of God's flock, but he's not the go-between between the sheep and the pasture. In other words, the sheep have access to the pasture all the time. You have the scriptures. You don't have to tell me where you're reading in the scriptures. You don't have to report back to me. You all have access to the pasture. My job is to help you know what's good in the, you know, how to understand what's in the pasture, what to avoid, what other people are telling you that is not representative of what God really says, what you're going to find in the pasture. I'm here to try to encourage you to get the most you can out of what God has seen fit to preserve for us. But we all have access. You can read the Bible, and by God's Spirit and enlightenment, you can get as much out of it or more than what you get out of it when you, when you come out and gather with the church on Sunday and I'm teaching you. So those are two potential opposite errors. 
with this understanding what is expected of pastors. It's pretty easy. The idea is my job is to equip. That word equip uh, originally in classical Greek means setting the bone. It's fixing something that's broken. If you break a bone, you've got to get a splint. You've got to go to somebody. They've got to put a splint on you. They've got to straighten it out. They've got to fix what's broken. But that's not the only way the word is used in the New Testament or used in the Bible. That's just originally what it, the root comes from. It's fixing something that's broken. In the New Testament, what you'll find, whether it's the noun or the verb, it means to put in proper condition or to make complete, strengthen, and prepare. I'm going to give you some examples of this. Sometimes you are trying to fix things that are broken. Sometimes you're just making something strong or you're preparing something for what's coming. So one example would be, 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That's the same word that's translated equip in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. And in this case, Paul is fixing something. Something is broken. You've got divisions within the Corinthian church. You've got loyalties here. You've got loyalties there. I believe this. I believe the rapture is going to happen here. Well, I don't think there's a rapture. There's all these differences of opinion. By the way, everybody really believes in the rapture. I just had this discussion last week. The, the problem is the timing of the rapture. I mean, the Bible clearly teaches saints will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. That's where the term comes from. But the, the difference of opinion is when and how does that exactly happen. So be that as it may. Uh, so in this case, it has the idea of you are fixing something. How about in Galatians chapter 6? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. Same word that's translated equipping. You restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Again, you've got this idea of fixing something. Trying to avoid something or fix something that's broken, or you want to avoid something that could happen that's not good. One of the reasons why the church exists, our church exists, is we want my job, what I'm entrusted with, partly is to steer you into what is true, what the apostles taught. What the apostles preserved for us. That's my job. Another way it's used, Hebrews chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created. That's the same word equipped. Was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are, vi are visible. In this case you're not fixing something. In this case, you're just perfecting something. You're equipping something. You're making something complete. Our universe is a complete, beautiful system. Everything designed with such perfection by the handiwork and power of God. Another use, Hebrews chapter 13. This is the benediction of a sermon, I think, that was preached. Now may the God of peace, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Ultimately, the equipping comes from God himself. God is the one who prepares us. God is the one who teaches us. God is the one that guides us into truth by his spirit, by, in his word, by his spirit, and preserves us from
error. Second question, with this understanding, what is expected of the saints? My job is to equip the saints. What is expected of the saints is the work of ministry and its work. And the ministry is for all of the saints, but none but the saints. I've been in a church tradition or two where they made it very clear they aren't looking for, you know, I think our, you know, I think we still have in our bulletin, like if you're, if you're not a member of the church, don't feel obligated to participate in the offering. Especially, like, if, you, if you're not a Christian, don't participate in the offering. The offering is for saints. The offering is for God's people. They're to be involved. In, that's just one of the works of ministry. Um, I m- remember a situation where somebody was in, not here, somebody was willing to make a very large donation, and it was an unbeliever because sometimes unbelievers can be generous, and the church was like, no, keep your money, you know, God's work needs to be funded by God's people. In fact, there's actually a little verse tucked in 2nd or 3rd John where that point is made as well. Uh, because you don't want to get the idea that, that you can earn God's righteousness by your merit or by your gracious giving. So, the work of ministry. What is the work of ministry? The a New International Version, NIV Application Commentary, I kind of paraphrased it a little bit, reads... The ministries of the people cover most of life, some of it unnoticed ministry, some of it more intentionally reaching out. Ministry includes quietly nurturing individuals, working with small groups, addressing needs and problems in the body and in society, and providing care to people in distress. So, I mean, if we were to pass out ballots and say, what do you think a church ought to be doing? What, what does a good church do? And if we put the, made this big list of what, what we thought a church ought to be, then it's like, okay, get at it. Let's start, let's start doing it. You do it, me do it. We'll all do it. It's the work of ministry. God's people are called to the work of ministry. Paul includes himself in this work of ministry because he uses the same word. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. We get our word deacon, by the way, from that word, because deacon means servant. It's somebody who serves. Paul's like, I serve. I mean, you can read about Paul's missionary journeys. He serves in some difficult places. But Paul's not exempt from ministry. I'm not exempt from from the work of ministry because I'm part of God's people too. My special charge is equipping... But I need all of us to be involved in the work of ministry. Sometimes it's noticeable, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's behind the scenes. I think people do things I have no idea what they're doing. And that's a good thing. I don't need to know those things. But you need to be involved somewhere. If you're a Christian, your job is the work of ministry. Luke, uh, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves, or ministers, same word. For who is greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves. Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I'm among you as the one who serves, as the one who ministers? Jesus says, I'm your example. 
And Jesus washed their feet when nobody else wanted that job. There is no job too low for you to do. No job. In fact, the more unqualified you think you are to be involved in the work of ministry, the more you are qualified. Because that's what a minister does. They recognize their humility in God's great scheme that they're included on any level. So if you think, well, I could never do anything, you are right where you need to be. Because now the world's opened up to what you could do. And that leaves us with comments and questions. I didn't say, I say there's some difference of opinion. Now, clearly there are, there is, whether Paul means there to be a difference in verse 11 uh, is kind of irrelevant because other places it talks about those that have the gift of teaching and they aren't pastors. So there is a gift of teaching that is not associated with being a pastor. Paul may recognize those gifts share so much in common, he groups them together with an and, or he may be exclusively talking about pastors who one of their main jobs is teaching. So it's kind of, it doesn't make any difference because there is a gift of teaching that's separate from pastors. I have two children, Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, and that's, that's nuanced because that's partly your role as a parent and a mother. And in some sense, that is to the encouragement in building up of the body of Christ. But I think it could go beyond that as well. Like if you have the gift, of, if somebody has the gift of teaching, it doesn't just mean their own family at home. I think it, it's, the circle winds up getting bigger than that. Cindy? The second is what Luther came out of. That was this sharp, distinct uh, separation between clergy and laity like in the Roman Catholic Church. So the first error is to make too much of pastors. The second error is to say they're irrelevant. Anytime you got Christians together, you're a church. No, that's not true either. So there's two errors. Okay, and then how many jobs do you have as a one or two? It's Joash. And then... Yeah, I mean, yeah, the Bible doesn't say how many. The Bible, I think, does speak in terms of elders' plurality. So I don't think the Bible supports a one guy who's in charge, which was kind of my Baptist upbringing. I mean, there was a board of, they would call them deacons. But at the end of the day, like Cindy's church was was more profoundly, uh, I'm not sure the right word, uh, like he had, a, he had a financial board, but when they didn't do what he wanted with the finances, he eliminated the board because uh, he had that kind of power. So a lot of times in, in her experience or my experience, the Baptist church, the Baptist pastor, he was, he was a Protestant kind of pope, right? He was kind of this, he was in charge. He got his way. And if he didn't, he got angry and or left. I mean, things like that happened. Uh, but the Bible does teach a plurality, and so elders refers to their maturity, which generally requires age, because with age, hopefully comes maturity. Not necessarily, because there's no fool like an old fool, but, but the word elder refers to a certain level of maturity, not a novice. Oversight uh, refers to that these elders have oversight of the, the flock. 
A pastor is the one feeding the flock. He's more involved, not just oversight, but his, uh, his special attention is to feeding the flock and guarding the flock from error, from what it would be false teaching. But they're, they're used three times in the Bible in the same context for the same people. Peter would be one. I'm an elder. I'm writing to fellow elders. Pastor God's flock exercising oversight. All three. The other occasion is in Acts chapter 20. Paul goes to the Ephesian elders and he tells the Ephesian elders, elders, shepherd the flock over which God has given you oversight. So they're, they're, they emphasize different things, but it's more or pretty much the same leadership group. Uh, to some extent, even an overseer has exercise, uh, is charged with, with pastoring, shepherding, yeah. That's true. I mean, when we, you know, there's only a few books of the Bible, New Testament, that I've never done. I've never done First and Second Timothy, so we're getting close. Um, and in Timothy, we will talk about elders in the plural, and we'll talk about especially those who labor in teaching. Or it'll, it'll make some distinction between the elders that some are given a charge, others are, don't really have that mantle, or they're not charged with that. We'll get into that, which in the Presbyterian church, they have ruling elders, and who's Presbyterian? What's the other one? I think there's ruling elders and something other elder, uh, maybe teaching elders. A pastor that... Yeah, I mean, it's nuanced because if you're a very large church, you're going to have, there's more specialty involved, uh, where some pastors, really their job is more administration and oversight and less teaching. So, I, I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think it's against what the Bible teaches. Uh, I do think the difference between, I mean, honestly, we could spend probably a lot of controversial time in this if we wanted uh, the difference between a pastor teaching and a teacher teaching is when I teach, I am teaching as a recognized, you have approved me as being one of the leaders of the church. And so I teach with a certain amount of, you're charging me with a certain responsibility and authority to get it right. Whereas if, if uh, you know, in a couple of weeks, Jordan Mc, uh, McFarland will be here from Southern View. I'll be here too, but I'll just be getting back from seeing my brother's family in Florida. So I won't be preaching, but he'll be preaching. He'll be teaching. He'll be preaching and teaching. But he doesn't teach as a recognized authority of the church. So you're responsible to whatever he gets out of God's word, you're responsible to comply with it. But he doesn't teach with the, the authority as a recognized leader of the church. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. Uh, Dilia. Uh, well, I mean, and, and part of it, you know, because I teach a lot, you know, you hear me more than you hear Jordan McFarland, right? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's end on a happy note. Kind of a controversial note, maybe, but it's fun. And I don't know if I should do something fun at the end of a service, but this is kind of fun. It's a little video on contemporary church. <laughs> you can't stop it. It's coming to a town near you. It used to be called contemporary. Some
but I've been here long enough. I've figured it out a while. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.